in every moment, you should worship your body and thank it for the magic that it provides. It takes beatings for you your entire life. It gladly accepts the stuffings of anything that you wish to put in all of its holes. Food, water, gigantic six-inch diameter spiked butt plugs. And it also works in a way... To, it basically works its tail off to break down and convert the energy so that you can have clarity and so that you can feel better. Anything that you're putting inside of it, it has to have something to do with. It has to process it. It has to move it around. And eventually, through the process, you get energy. You feel better. The body loves when you feel good because it's doing its job well. I mean, if you are happy and free, your body is happy and free. It gets to get out. It gets to experience. It gets to actually serve its purpose much better than you know, sulking away in, in a dark room on a couch. Next time you contemplate a toxic situation, think about how it will affect your body. It's your temple. This can be a very simple key to a life of health and happiness. In a battle, who is more likely to win? The army that shows up with a clear mind, a definite strategy, high energy, physical strength, or the one who is weak, tired, and lacking clarity. This is the same battle that you face every day in your war against the resistance gremlins. If your mind and your body are well-nourished and high in strength, then you will have no problem slaughtering the gremlins and building your empire. If you show up half awake with your guard down, the gremlins are going to blindside you in areas where you least expect it. You are the general. Your body is the army. Strengthen your mind and work diligently on your strategy, but do not forget the importance of just caring and loving that sexy temple, that body. You cannot defeat the gremlins with mind power alone. You need your chariots. You need your catapults. You need your silver blades. If you get in line to have the fast food mascot shit down your throat, is that utilizing your health and consciousness to their fullest capacities? To perform at your highest, you must feel your best inside out. Treat your body with respect and optimal care, for it is the sanctuary that carries your sacred passenger. It can either serve your happiness empire, or it can limit you. If you love and care for it, it will perform miracles for you. So the next time you find yourself on a blackout rampage inside of a greasy fast food joint at 2 a.m., don't put that shit in your mouth. Take a dookie in the mascot's mouth instead. Hit the gym, slam some whole foods, start training for battle. The gremlins that stand between you and your freedom are in need of a good ass kicking, baby. Strengthen your army, deliver the motherfucking massacre. It always feels hard at first. You know, your microbiome is built up possibly to crave the sugar that you've been consuming forever. Uh, to crave the fast food that you've been eating and feeding off of forever because that's what you've been feeding it and that negative um, biome has, has grown and it's sending cravings to your brain to say, give me more of this so that we can keep growing. But that biome is trying to kill you. What you need to do is flip the script. When you start eating healthier, yeah, your body starts to feel like shit. It's because all of that old stuff is dying off. All of those things that are craving the nasty food 
are dying off and it's sending signals to your brain in one last attempt to try to get you to feed it again so that it can continue to thrive. But when you don't and you push through that feeling of shit and you continue to eat healthy, then the good biome starts to grow. And all of a sudden you start craving healthy foods and you start to feel better and you start to lose that acne. You start to lose that water weight. You can move better. Your joints feel better. Your happiness level increases. And you continue to feed that biome. You get more clarity. You become stronger. You know where you're going. You know who you want to be. And you take action in that direction. Do it. You have the strength to push through that zone. Break those bad habits. Because all of the the, the warriors that are on your side, on the good side, they need to come into your body and you have to put them there first. You have to build that biome and you have to kill off the old stuff. So do it. It's a much better lifestyle. I've been on both ends. I am Heath Armstrong and this is Never Stop Peaking. It's depressing like a dimple on your butt. If you behave, you'll get a nickel you can spend on stuff. And in time, you'll get a dime if you impress your boss. So you can buy some more stuff just to numb your thoughts. You've been a space-driven higgity hunk of me since birth. Flying through the universe on a rock called Earth. Composed of stardust with an emotional gut. Why you letting conformity slam you up the butt? You're not one fucks, two fucks, red fucks, blue fucks. You can play duck hunt and wait around for luck. Or you can rent a big truck and drive your vision. Build a palace to the moon. Your schmuck friends piss their pants Get up and dance, rocket ship that booty Take a chance for your freedom, miggity milk that booby Cause when the fear attacks, it tries to crack What you're thinking? Fuck no, you'll never stop peeking Beautiful people What is up? Ah, I love podcasting Every time I do it, I get this sense of just like divine creation that flows through me. And it, it's a very, a very strong muse and a nice reminder of, of how fascinating it is to just entangle in other people's stories and to, to share experiences, you know, physically and adapt them into this digital world for other people to hear so that they, you all essentially can go out and, and um, change the way that you approach life as well. I remember being on the other end of this. Not having a podcast way before the Artsy Now show and getting inspired enough from listening to some episodes that I was able to start taking action to change everything. And, and it's been a crazy four and a half years since I started that journey and a lot has changed. And I'm really happy today to bring on somebody that was there at the very beginning of that um, who has an incredible story as far as a childhood goes and life in general has experienced the world on levels that most people could only ever fraction um, to dent. And before I get into this episode, I wanted to move into this, the way that I'm going to take this show as far as carving it. I, as you know, I've, I've done a lot of energetic and spiritual work with previous episodes, which I continue to follow that path because there are signs that come into life. I follow them. Things evolve. Um, it's, it's miraculous the things that I've experienced because I'm paying attention to these, these beautiful incidences and, and synchronicities. And I was just recently on Jared and Gaza's show, which is called Noetic. If you're not 
familiar with that, go check it out. I mean, he's familiar. He has not released the episode with me yet, um, but it was a, a fantastic reminder, and, and I'm moving into doing some really powerful things with him. And if you guys don't know who I'm talking about, go back and listen to, I think it's one of the first couple episodes about how I met Jared on a plane 10 years ago and how everything has evolved in our lives since then. And there's a lot of synchronicity, but check out the new episode of Noetic when it comes out and some of his other ones too, because it's, it's very in depth and very aligned with who I am and what I'm becoming. But in this mass transition from last year and in the mass changes that I've had to experience in life from where I thought I was going to be to who I actually am and what I'm becoming now, um, for the first time ever, I think I'm in a position where I'm not really sure physically where I'm going to be in a couple months. I've always usually had that kind of planned out. What countries am I going to travel to? You know, what am I going to do as far as making money? Where am I going to be physically? Am I going to have an apartment? I'm going to you know, look for property, whatever. But I don't right now, and I'm okay with that. And I'm more okay with that than I ever have been. And I'm really leaning hard into the idea of floating in experience and flow consciousness which was, I think, episode 19 with Jackie and Justin, which you know, I was fasting that day, so it wasn't as in-depth as I would have loved for it to be, but they are brilliant people. And um, going with the wind, going with the flow, is a very fascinating and powerful thing to be able to do. And when you do that, miraculous things come into your existence that open up doors that weren't there before, that open up doors for you that are there for nobody else. Um, and it's incredible. So in this episode, I am going to start the first episode of interviewing people who live on the road, people who have done drastic outdoor experiences to never stop peaking. In an attempt to really understand and embody the energy of those who have really made themselves uncomfortable, really not known where they're going, because I feel like I'm going in that direction and, and I to really expand experience in life and to get the taste of that grit, I know it's going to be extremely difficult. And I have incredible friends all over the world that are doing amazing things like this. And I've been able to interview lots of them in the past trickled in, but I'm going to start focusing heavily on this idea of real experience, real authentic experience in many different avenues and I think you're going to really enjoy some of the stuff that we have coming out. So Lily is an author and she has a giveaway today. I forgot to do this the past couple episodes, but if you go to heatharmstrong.com forward slash giveaway, you can enter to win this episode's giveaway and all future episodes giveaways. Um, she is giving away a, an original spiral bound version of this book that she wrote that is basically a bunch of excerpts from her new book that's coming out. And we're going to get into what her book's about shortly um, I'm going to play a couple tunes first, and then I will see you on the other side of it.
1987, Lily Ann Fouts was eight years old. Her abusive father was given custody of her and her sister, who was six, over their loving, magical mother due to an unfortunate judiciary decision. Lily and her sister begged their mother not to leave them with her father. And out of sheer unconditional motherly love, as I would hope most mothers would do, and in an attempt to protect her children, Lily's mother offered her daughters a solution. To go on the run and escape the abuse, well, basically risking everything. To allow them to live with her, they had to evade authorities. It wasn't long before Lily's face appeared on the milk cartons as a missing child. Remember the milk carton kids? And for the next seven years, Lily, her mother, and her sister evaded authorities throughout the United States and Mexico, figuring out how to survive daily by the grace of good people, community, and a series of universal synchronicity visions, basically, that helped guide their mother along the way. This classified them as fugitives, and that meant that they were constantly being hunted. Uh, Bounty hunters, authorities, their father trying to track them down. In this episode, Lily breaks down her experience as a child on the run and all of the magic and tragedy that happened along the way. You know, from puking in fish markets to escaping out back alleys while her mother was tracked by bounty hunters and cops, this story is remarkable, it's inspiring, it's full of grit. Ever since her conversion to living on the road, Lily has not given up the lifestyle of being nomadic. She travels and lives full-time out of her RV with her husband, Keith, and uses her experience to help others create unconventional lifestyles of location independence and sustainable businesses on the road. I met Lily in 2015 at the World Domination Summit in Portland, long before I ever moved to the Rose City. I've always admired and looked up to her approach at experiencing life, and I wouldn't be anywhere close to where I am without her. Her influence has been huge to me, and it continues to be huge to me every day. She edits my books. She helped with the domination deck. She's brilliant in so many different ways, and she has a very family-like oriented energy um, to me, and she's a very special person. It just happens to be that her story is remarkable. You go to my website at heatharmstrong.com forward slash podcast. You can check out the picture of the fugitive paper with her picture on it, which is pretty cool. And her book's called Seven Years Running, which has not yet come out, um, but is going to soon. And you can download a free chapter of her book if you go to uh, Lily Fouts. I'm sorry, lilyannfouts.com. And that's A-N-N. Um, and not, there's no E. So L I L Y A N N F O U T S dot com. And it's really cool just to check out the picture. Um, Lily invited me to a speaking conference as a guest in Philly. Uh, I mean, it, I guess it was last year now, late last year. And it changed everything. I mean, it was, it was remarkable what it did for my confidence in that area. And I cannot, you know, I can't even begin to crack the shell on, on how much I how much respect I have for her, how thankful I am for her and her family and her mother. Um, I wouldn't be where I am without her. And so I am very much grateful for her mother taking that risk and getting her, <laughs> you 
getting her away from her father and allowing her to have this life of experience because she's influencing so many people and it's very magical. This is episode 21 of Never Stop Peaking. You can check out all of the show notes on heatharmstrong.com forward slash podcast. Enter the giveaway to win the spiral bound excerpts from her book physically um, at heatharmstrong.com forward slash giveaway. And I'll get right into this episode. It's a good one. It's a long one, but the story is very, um, it's very, it's, it's captivating. So I will see you all on the other side of it. And yeah, big love. Peace. mom lives in Colorado now. Oh yeah. Yeah, she, they've been in this house since 2001. So does your does your Keith's parents do they live in Kansas? Yes. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. Keith's family is from there. My family is from all over, but um yeah, they've been here since 2001. What part? Um a little tiny town east of Colorado Springs. Nice. Maybe yeah. I'll move into their bathtub. <laughs> yeah, they have a really nice big jacuzzi bathtub in their master bathroom. So, <laughs> you know, when I sold my house and like got rid of all my stuff back shortly after I met you at World Domination Summit in 2015, I had a uh, I had a nice big jacuzzi tub like in my bedroom. It was amazing. <laughs> And you getting rid of all those things is a phenomenal feeling and it's a, the most freeing thing ever, especially, be, you know, you understand this because yeah. you've sort of lived your life that way. But you also mm -hmm. remember sometimes it like hits you again. And you're like, oh, that was really nice when I had that, you know, like <laughs> I remember yeah. that. Like that was really it was really amazing. Um, yep. There are certain times where I kind of miss having a house, but then I think about all of the adventures I've had since getting rid of the house. I don't, eh, it's worth <laughs> yeah, I know it's exactly <laughs> experience is the greatest currency. Absolutely, greatest part of life. So I'm pumped that you're uh, you're here. I can't believe that we've never done a podcast together. I don't think. Yeah, after how many years of knowing each other, like four years now, and still haven't done a podcast. It's <laughs> insane. So I'm on the brink of some pretty mass transitions and I've missed you quite a few times in the last mastermind. It seems like we're hitting yeah. schedules with that. Um, and it's going to happen again. The next mastermind, I think if you're yes. there tomorrow and I can't be, so I saw that, <laughs> but at least I get you right now. I, um, uh, my lease ends in like two weeks or two months at the end of July and I'm not going to renew it. And so pushing myself into that kind of experience, um, lifestyle, I didn't buy a van or anything like that either. I'm just going to try to figure out how to make it work out of the Xterra for a while and then possibly make some transitions based on the experience that I have. If it's needed, I do have a dog, 
Um, so yeah. she, do, do you travel with pets? Do you have pets? Uh, we have a cat, a Does cat with an RV? attitude. Yeah. <laughs> she travels with us in the motorhome. Yeah. That's a little bit easier. She's probably yeah. a spirit, spirit guide on the road. <laughs> she's pretty so, awesome. Thought she's very good outdoors, but she's not. I don't think she's very happy inside of a small apartment all the time. So I really do think on the road, she's going to have a lot more adventure as far as being able to get out, run around. I'll be outside a lot more. Mm -hmm. So I think that payoff's great, but just kind of the logistical things that I think it probably takes years and maybe a lifetime. There's probably still things that you figure out today that you're like, wow, I wish I would have known that five years mm -hmm. ago, you know? <laughs> yep. So I'm, I'm interested in, as I did with the artsy now show inter, you know, interviewing kind of creative entrepreneurs and how they made a living doing things that they love. Now I'm stepping into more of a, an experience quest of finding all these amazing people that are doing these experiences on the road, um, or simple living or something very unique. And I can't help, but have you come to mind first because you were there in the beginning. Uh, when I first started making transitions, you've helped me so much. Um, you've saved my ass, obviously, with editing, with the sweet-ass journal, the domination deck, and all of that, <laughs> and turning my third-grade vocabulary into nice fairy talk. And <laughs> you were a milk carton kid, which yeah. is still the only milk carton kid I've ever met. It's, it's amazing that you're here to talk about how you were a milk carton kid. Um, mm -hmm. And... Your story ever since really, it's not like you just did that and then went back to a, a conventional life. You've, you've created this life and continued to, to live on the road by choice. And it's not an easy thing to do. And I know that there's periods where you hit walls where you're trying to figure out how to make the next money so that you can move the RV possibly to the next spot or trying to figure out how you're going to be able to you know, go to Mexico for a couple months or where you're going to be next. Um, and then just the survival aspect of all of it, but you're a phenomenal writer and obviously in tune with all things experience and adventure, which excites me every time I see you. And there's something very magical about you that I am and have always been attracted to in the most humble way. Uh, I have a lot of respect for you and I look up to you so much and I'm very disappointed that the, uh, the Antarctica sticker that your husband Keith gave me, somebody broke into my car and stole the water bottle that it was on. <laughs> oh, dang because it. I, well, we'll get you another one. We still I have actually some, used so. it as, as like, uh, <laughs> every time I looked at it, I would be like, there's still more I, because it was Antarctica. There was something special about it. I'd be like, there's still more, like, even though I've done all these adventures myself and I'm out in mountains all the time and I'm traveling too, and I have this, this lifestyle that allows me to do that now, it was like that next step of like, oh, what can I do now? Like, there's still Antarctica. I haven't made it there yet, you know, or in, you know, 170 other countries I haven't been to. So <laughs> I'm really happy that you're here and thanks for coming. Well, thank you. It's an honor. It's an honor to be here. So... I just, I have no way around starting because we mentioned the milk carton kid thing, um, to talk about your, your childhood first and how you grew up. And I got to just see your mom, which was amazing. Cause she's a big part of the story <laughs> and you're co-writing this book with her that you've been working on forever. And 
the story is it's it's very unique. Like there's no way that it doesn't get out and into the world and inspire and, and get picked up because you were on the run in Mexico as a child, evading police, doing all these amazing things. But at the same time, as a child being in that position, you probably didn't really understand how different it would have been if you had been out of the position, you know, and all of yeah. that has influenced you to become this amazing nomadic, uh, creative beast today, beast in the most <laughs> lovely way. And, um, I'd like to hear a little bit about that experience of, you know, giving the listeners why you were doing that, what, what it was like and um, how it got you to, to where you are today in a way. All right. Well, yeah, where to even begin? I have, I have a very different childhood, um, as you've alluded to. Um, when I was uh, a young kid, my dad wasn't really very involved in the family. He uh, would go away for months at a time. And um, one day he uh, basically asked my mom if he could um, take us for a couple of weeks visit and um, unbeknownst to her intended to keep us filed for full custody and for divorce from her because they were just separated at the time. Um, so he was abusive and long story short, there was a big battle after that. And through a whole bunch of lies and unethical means, he ended up winning custody of me and my sister. And um, we were begging our mom not to make us go back with him. And she's like, I, I can't take you. It's against the law, you know, <laughs> but at the same time, she, you know, she sensed that things were wrong. that Things were not good at his place. And, you know, we kept coming back uh, sick and, you know, he wasn't feeding us properly. He, you know, it was just, it, it wasn't a good situation. And so, um, anyway, she Do eventually, really do you think that was that was obviously some sort of failure from the justice system point of view there? Mm -hmm. I mean, was he? Uh, yeah. Did he have friends that allowed that to happen or is it just they made the flat out wrong decision? Well, I think it was a combination of a bunch of different things. Yeah. Um, I mean, there were there were things that uh, the legal system kind of um, frowned upon that my mom did, for example, she had planned to homeschool us and that was kind of very unpopular in the eighties. Um, now, now look so at it, what, you know, <laughs> you know so there, there, there was that end of it. Out. <laughs> um, and then there were things like, um, uh, my dad talked to the judge before the trial. So he had a chance to kind of persuade him his direction before the, the thing started. Um, the judge was already biased against my family because of a previous court case that had involved my grandparents. That's another whole long story. Um, so there were, he, he should have not even been hearing the case because he was biased from the get go against my family, my mom's right. family. So, um, you know, there's just so many different things that were, that contributed to the fact that um, that he won. And then there were just flat out lies. Um, again, this was in the eighties. Um, and he told the court that my mom was a lesbian Tough. and he didn't feel comfortable with his daughters being with a lesbian, which 
was completely untrue, but I mean, even if it had been true, <laughs> so what, but this was yeah. the eighties and they were against that. So, um, so anyway, yeah, there's so many things contributed what town, to it. What, what, what state were you in Lily? Um, it was in the state of Washington. Washington. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. Close to, yeah. I forgot. Weren't you born in Walla Walla? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. Yeah, it was. Yep. So yeah, this this all happened in Washington State, um, not in Walla Walla, but but in this yeah. state. Yeah. That's Sachi. <laughs> Hi, Sachi. <laughs> anyway, you can. can so, I, I didn't mean to interrupt it, but I thought it was a yeah good question to ask. Basically, yeah, I mean it's a good question, and it's it's one a lot of people want to know, like why, how did he even win in the first place? But um, so yeah, there was I think there were multiple factors that contributed to it, but. Um, ultimately, my mom decided that in order to protect us, um, maybe we should go on the run. And she was very careful about how she did it because she wanted it to be our choice. She didn't want to take us against our will. Um, so she took us on a really unpleasant, hot, long, difficult trip where she didn't give us very much food or water. I mean, we were just miserable. And at the end of that trip, she basically said, you girls have been asking me to take you. If we do, we're going to be breaking the law. If we're caught, I could get thrown in jail. Um, and it could be very hard, like this trip was. You know, she wanted it to be, like, fresh in our minds. Like, we're not taking the easy path. Uh, but we still would rather be with her than with him. So we, my sister and I made the decision, ultimately, that we wanted to go on the run. And she was very, very much, um, you know, if you want to go back to him, just say the word. How old were you? Well, we were six and eight at the time. You were younger. Okay, uh, yeah. I'm the older one. Oh, you were older, eight, yeah. and your sister yeah. was six. Okay. Yep. So that's that's how it all started, and wow. <laughs> yeah, uh, the next seven years we were in hiding, and we were evading the police and the FBI and uh, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. Uh, there were wanted posters out there for us. So your mom is a true thug. She's a, <laughs> she, <laughs> she was really good at this, you know, like either well, that or they weren't pursuing with all their force, but like it's, that, you know, she, it she did a really how it smart thing. She did a really smart thing at the beginning when she was thinking about, okay, I'm going to take the girls. How am I going to pull this off? And, and my mom's the kind of person she grew up, you know, Miss Goody two shoes, she never yeah. broke the rules. She, you know, she never had anything even closely resembling a criminal record. She'd never even had a parking ticket at this point in her life. I mean, nothing. Yeah. She was goody two shoes kind of a lady. And um, so for her to do this, I mean, she had no idea where to even begin. But what she did is she called the National Center for Missing Exploited Children and she just asked, how do you guys go about, you know, searching for kids that are missing? And the lady who answered the phone assumed that she was looking for her kids and gave her all kinds of helpful information. And that kind of became my mom's uh, little playbook on what not to do um, to get caught. So, Genius. I mean, when we moved, we immediately changed our names. We quit using any kind of ID. Um, uh, back in the 80s, you could fly on a plane without um, ID. So we gave them false names when we when we got on the plane and and got out of Washington. So wow, that blows my mind. 
Yeah, I know. You just get on it's, a plane. Like, like I think there might have been metal detectors, maybe, but it yeah. was like no problem. I mean, this was the days when everybody went to the gate together to see their loved ones off. Like it was a different world back then. Um, but yeah, I mean, we just my mom went to the counter, bought tickets that day under false names, and we got on the plane and flew to Mississippi. So Louisiana, actually, <laughs> and then we drove to Mississippi. But um, yeah, so, yeah, it was a different world. I mean, what we did back then would be impossible now. Yeah. I mean, there's just no way. We what could, did your, we, do you have any recollection or do you know what your, what your father's reaction was when he found out that you guys had fleed? Was he aggressive with trying to find you? He, yeah, well, he was, it's, it's funny because years later, like 10 years after all of this was over, I called the FBI agent, one of the FBI agents who had been involved with our case. And I asked him like, do you remember us? Uh, do you remember our case and, and what was your impression of my father? Because I, I was curious, like, what was going on on that side of it? Because obviously I wasn't yeah. there. So, um, and he told me, he's like, uh, you know, he kind of was stepping around the bush, not wanting to say anything too bad. But he's like, your father is a very aggressive, quote unquote, victim father. Um, and yeah, he was like telling the FBI how to do their jobs and they really didn't like him. Uh, they were, he was trying to tell them what to do. He'd hired his own private investigator who was kind of going behind their backs and, um, doing his own investigation. And, um, he actually complained about the FBI not doing their jobs. And it was obvious. I mean, I've seen the FBI file. I, I got it under the Freedom of Information Act. Um, they were working hard, you know, <laughs> and he was complaining that they weren't doing their jobs. And he, he called a congressman uh, and like sick a congressman on them. I mean, it was like, yeah, they were really, really sick of him by the wow. uh, end of it all, but they had to do their jobs, you know? So, mm -hmm. yeah, I don't blame so you were in Mississippi. <laughs> and how long were you there? We were in Mississippi for, I mean, <laughs> it, there was a lot of coming and going. So from yeah. Mississippi, we were staying with some friends initially, but we didn't want them to get in trouble. So it's like, well, let's go over here. We were kind of bouncing around. Um, we stayed with uh, this like Baptist pastor uh, at his house in Oklahoma for like one or two weeks. And then we went to uh, a Mennonite uh colony or whatever in uh tennessee we were there for a month or so oh, nice. uh, and we just kept coming i was back probably i was probably living there maybe ads. <laughs> it was that was pretty interesting being with the mennonites i i have kind of fond memories of playing with uh the mennonite kids and you know they are very brilliant people and on a yeah. side note when i was working in the concrete construction industry for a long time i did a lot of stuff with Mennonites who owned their own concrete plants and oh, wow. we'd have like, you know, my guy, parts of our tech team. And like, we'd have these big chemical systems that you'd have to work on. And sometimes I wouldn't be able to figure stuff out. And those dudes would just come and like with a, the smallest wrench ever and disable, like just dismember the entire, whatever tool you're using. I mean, it could be like a, a power washer or like a any like any type of tool, lawnmower, uh -huh. whatever, whatever 
engine tool. They would take it all the way down, put it all the way back together within like 30 minutes and it would be working like it was new again. I mean, these yeah. systems that would be pumping like gross chemicals and you can imagine what chemicals do inside things like they were oh, just, yeah. it was, it was amazing what they could do, but yeah, that's another, I, yeah. I can see that you probably picked up some, some cool, some cool heady, some heady little vibes from the Mennonites that you got to hang <laughs> out with for a little bit. Maybe some survival skills. huh? <laughs> yeah. I don't know about survival skills. I mean, it was just, <laughs> uh, <laughs> It was just, uh, they were farmers. They, they were dairy farmers and we were yeah. on there. I remember playing in the, uh, on the big gates that, that they used to close the cows off into the pastures, you know, and we would jump on the gate. It would be this huge gate that was swing and we would just like swing on this gate for fun. And <laughs> all those, <laughs> yeah. those memories that stick are always great. Oh you know, yeah. Just like playing and and they there were wild persimmon trees growing and we would go with one of the girls that became a friend of ours and we were out like picking wild Ooh. persimmons and eating them and just like memories Simple like that life. yeah yeah so yeah it was it was good um it was an interesting experience but we weren't there for long we were only there for about a month um ultimately uh we found out um that the uh, some friends of ours had mentioned in an interview with the FBI. They'd been questioned by the FBI and they had mentioned the names of our friends in Mississippi that we were staying with. And my mom found this out and she's like, Oh my God, they're on their way. <laughs> we got to get out of here. So, um, so I mean, to answer your question, we were in Mississippi for basically from August until November. Um, and then in November we headed to El Paso, Texas, and uh, worked on getting across the border into Mexico. And that's where we spent the next five years. Did you have trouble getting across? Do you remember? Uh, yes, we did. <laughs> that was another. <laughs> okay, you're going to love this like, story. How smooth did that go? <laughs> oh, man. Okay, so we got What to year El was this again? This was 1987. Okay. All right. Um, we got to El Paso. Uh, it was probably early November. Um, went to the consulate's office or whatever, trying to get the paperwork we needed to get into Mexico legally. And of course, uh, they said, you need a written permission from the father in order to take the girls into Mexico <laughs> and live down there. So uh, <laughs> obviously we're not getting that. So, um, my mom was just kind of, oh my good goodness, what do we do now? Okay. I got to back up a little bit because the place where we were staying, um, we had gotten into El Paso and we, my mom basically had no money left. She had like 40 bucks or 80 bucks or something, like less than a hundred dollars. Um, and she's like, okay, I got to figure out how to make this last long enough and, you know, stay in a place, find a place to stay and find food, you know, and we had a friend who was going to meet up with us there and take us into Mexico, a Mexican friend that we knew from Washington. Um, so he was kind of going to be our guide into Mexico. And we had about a week at that point, we thought that we needed to wait for this guy. And we're like, how do we make $80 last for a week? So um, my mom went to the cheapest part of town and she being the innocent Miss Goody two shoes that didn't really, you know, she's extremely naive and sheltered growing up uh, <laughs> turned out to be like basically a, at home for prostitutes. Um, oh, God. And um, so the guy kind of looked at her. He's like, honey, you don't belong here. <laughs> you know? 
So um, he's like, let me call, let me call a priest. So he actually called a priest and um, this guy came and took us to a mission house run by a bishop. His name is Bishop Clifton. Um, and so this place was kind of like a, a place where recovering alcoholics and drug users kind of lived and, and, you know, went out and did work or whatever. And then came back in the evening. Um, but we were perfectly safe there. You know, it was crowded, but, but we had a safe place to sleep. Um, and this Bishop basically cleared out a little spot on the floor behind the TV and he's like, you can sleep there, you know? So, um, so this is where we were staying. Um, but he, my mom hadn't told him that we were trying to get to Mexico, that we were on the run or anything. Um, and so we tried to get our, our paperwork to go to Mexico. Couldn't get it. The next morning, my mom's just, you know, what do we do now? Um, and the bishop calls her into his office. And he's like, um, I'm going to help you get to Mexico. And my mom's like, what? Um, <laughs> how did you know we're trying to get to Mexico? And um, he goes, well, a few months ago, I had this dream. And a woman with two kids showed up at the mission house. And in my dream, um, a voice told me that I was supposed to help this woman get to Mexico. And I knew you were the woman because in my dream, we were playing with the name. We were changing it back and forth from Spanish to English. And it was amigo and friend. And he's like, when you introduced yourself as wrote a friend, I knew you were the woman in my dream. Wow. So <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's freaky. So um, it is. And it makes so much sense though. So this guy had some connections with the border people and, you know, people across the border and um, basically was able to help us get all the paperwork we needed to get into Mexico legally. So that's, Game that's how we system. got into Mexico. Help of the divine. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. Um, and, and I don't know, like, sometimes I wonder, like, for the, for the longest time, I thought, no, that was definitely a miracle. And maybe it was, you know, I don't know. I don't know, you know, where I, where I stand on things, but like, Maybe somebody talked to him from the consulate's office and he heard about us. But I mean, there's just so many things that it's like, it's one of those. He probably just really had the universal dream. conscience could be a thing, you know? No, I, <laughs> Hey, you're talking to somebody that has incidents like that happen all the time. And it, yeah. growing up as someone who would have never believed in any of that stuff. And then you start experiencing it and mm -hmm. then it keeps happening. There's just no going back on it. Right. I mean, even, even yeah. little things like the other day when I, Somebody was telling me they were having trouble sleeping, and I literally got on Amazon.com and found – I searched for Hanson books as a joke to send a link to them. And I found this book, and I was like, oh, I'd, I've never seen this book before, but there's this like unofficial Hanson biography. And I was like, I wonder how I never saw that as a kid because I was so obsessed. Sent her the link and was like, just read this, and you'll sleep you know, tight, basically. And again, never had seen that book ever. The next, the very next morning, I was walking Saatchi in concrete jungle of downtown Portland. I live under the bridge in a very sketchy area because I rented my apartment without actually looking. I did it online, thinking it was on a different part of the street. And the street goes way up the road to a nicer part. 
and we walked by this this one house, the only house that has rose bushes, like or any type of flowers within you know ten blocks. And that exact book was just laying in the rose garden, like the physical copy of that Hanson book, the same wow. exact one. And things like that, I'm just like, there's a game going on here. Like, you know, I'm picked, <laughs> somehow I intercepted that idea before it physically came into my life. And, and it just, those little things happen all the time. And, and I meet yeah. amazing people so much that, that have similar stories like this, that visions or dreams or something happens where it leads them in a certain direction and then everything just opens up for them. So I'm not surprised at all with, with the vision. Yeah. Stream, I mean, and we have several stories like that. So it's like, yeah, yeah I mean, I don't know what it means, but I'm definitely open the to the right to, path. Uh, <laughs> I'm definitely open to the to whole possibility of a collective conscious at the very least. Um, yeah. Uh, but anyway, um, so yeah, that's how we got into Mexico. So that's, that was, that was pretty mind blowing. <laughs> um, and then, Safely, uh, thankfully, yeah, our, our friends showed up and we rode a train way down into the interior and it's kind of set up our lives down there. Where, when you say interior, what do you mean? Um, about a thousand miles in. So wow. we were, um, in the state of Michoacan and, um, we started out in a little town called Pajacuaran. We were just there for a few months and we moved to several different um, towns in Mexico. And the one that where we stayed the longest and enjoyed the most was Pátzcuaro. Um, and I'm actually in the process of getting ready to move back to Pátzcuaro. So <laughs> <laughs> love it so much. It's, uh, it's, it's amazing. Home. Yeah. So you spent seven years on the run, right? Seven From years. The time you yeah. were eight until the time you were mm -hmm. 15. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Just shy of my 15. And, I mean, a couple months shy of my 15th birthday. When and you got to, got to Mexico when you were still eight or nine. What, how, how young were you? Um, yeah, I was eight. My sister was six. Um, okay. yeah, I mean, it was just a few months after we took off that we went into Mexico. And, and were you in Mexico the, the full seven years straight? Um, uh, no, we were in Mexico for five. Um, okay. And we got back to the United States in 1992. Um, and then we were still in hiding for another couple of years after that. While you were in Mexico, what do you think? I'm just curious because that, that's a good range of time. What, what experiences do you think that you had that influenced you so much now? Um, in today's day and time that, that helped you kind of understand the experience lifestyle is what you want or, or it influenced you enough to, to create the lifestyle that you have now, if that makes sense. Was there anything in particular that you remember happening or was it just, Oh man, like the it's... good, the good stuff, you know? And then after that, I want to ask you about some of the sketchy stuff that happened. Cause I'm sure that there's some <laughs> of that too. Yeah. I mean, there were some of both for sure. Um, the good stuff. Oh man. I mean, we made such good friends in Mexico that were so close. They were like family to us. Um, and I think having, having really close friends, you know, that, that we associated with on a regular basis, um, was really good. Um, how was it shocking for you having never been out of, 
I guess, have you, had you ever been out of the country before that? I mean, I mean, we've been up to Canada and, and across okay. the border to Mexico, just never, traveling, but never right. spent time. So know. how, how, so I'm, I'm sure it was somewhat shocking to submerge yourself in that new culture, but then falling in love with it was, it's, it's an interesting angle because even for me, like I had never traveled ever before I was, yeah. you know, 27 or something. And then I went to Asia and when you finally submerge yourself and realize that the culture you grew up in isn't necessarily the only or the best in any type of way, and there's so right. much magic and things that can be learned from submerging in, in other cultures, it, it, it opens up an entire new life path for you. You just can't yeah. ever go back, I don't think. Um, yeah, absolutely. So how was that as such a young child experiencing that and falling in love well, with it? I mean, it was, there was definitely culture shock. I remember when we first got down there, um, my mom and my sister were sick and the town that we were in, Bajacuaran, at the time, uh, very few people in the town had ever seen somebody from anywhere else, you know? It was like, it's this yeah. closed off little part of the world. <laughs> and and uh, so, I mean, everybody was staring at us, everybody wanted to see us, and people were coming over and like touching us and touching our hair and like asking us questions in a language we couldn't understand. <laughs> it was just overwhelming. We felt like animals in a zoo because everybody was looking at us. Um, That's how I feel in the Philippines. Yeah. Yeah, I bet, especially you because you're so tall. But, um, but yeah, I mean, everybody was interested in us and looking at us and asking us questions, and we just felt like everybody was so nosy um, and um, just, like, going to the market, we were – just just walking to the market, we caused a traffic jam because so many people like stopped, try, j just stopped to look at us. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's so, a yeah. real thing that happens. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and there's no shame in staring, you know, in, in those places. Right. Yeah, that's how it was. And so it was really challenging. And then I remember the very first time we went to the market, oh, my goodness, you know, it's not like Safeway at all. <laughs> you know, you go in there. It's not like a regular grocery store because there's, you know, piles of food everywhere and then the, the meat section and the fish section. And I am a lifelong vegetarian. So um, I remember walking in and smelling the fish and it was just, I needed some <laughs> fresh air and I'm trying to find a place to breathe some fresh and it's air. it's intense because of the heat oh, and there's and, no refrigeration. Yeah. They just use piles oh, yeah. of ice if they even have ice. Yeah. 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 So it was, it was really smelly and I was not used to it at all. And I'm looking around like, where can I go to breathe some fresh air? And, uh, and then I turn around and here's this pig's head hanging from a hook. You know, there's slabs of meat and everything hanging from a hook and I'm staring straight into the lifeless eyes of this pig. And I just, I lost it. Like I threw up right there in the middle of the market. Um, oh. And everybody was staring at me even more. And it was like, Oh, it was just, I just wanted to dig a hole and crawl into the ground and hide forever. Yeah. Um, it was so embarrassing. Um, so yeah, that was, that was kind of the first few days in Mexico. It was rough uh, to be honest. <laughs> And we didn't speak Spanish. So it's like we couldn't understand anything that people were trying to say to us. And, yeah, that was challenging now, at first. That's obviously one big uh, booster that came out of that is you speak the most phenomenal Spanish. <laughs> so 
That's why yeah, I'm going to move into your mother's house, live in her bathtub, and have you teach me Spanish when you're there. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, yes, learning Spanish, learning the culture, um, and just learning how to be in other cultures different from your own, uh, those are all skills that I pulled away from from my childhood experience that I wouldn't trade for anything. So, How did that change your level of sort of modesty or, um, you know, humbleness. You're, you're one of the most humble people I've ever met anyway. And I don't, it could be because of the way that you grew up, but you're all, you just have this naturally sweet essence to you. And I can kind of picture how you were as a child. And how do you think, I mean, for me, every time I go, like if I go to Uganda or I go to the Philippines to work with my team or anything, I'm always just like my heart, it feels like my heart just gets bigger and bigger, you know? And it's like, nothing that I kind of grew up knowing and, and as, as amazing as all of it is to be in those situations, you know, with the childhood that I had, um, you don't learn near as much as you can in like a week submerged in that type of place. So how, how do you think that changed your kind of, I guess, modesty? Um, that makes, well, I mean, we were struggling, I mean, to make ends meet, as you know, we went into Mexico with essentially no money because by then the $80 <laughs> like was long gone. Yeah. Um, and so, I mean, honestly, at first we were, we were relying on the kindness and generosity of people there, you know, and, and the perception of course is you're white, you're American, you must be rich. And we literally had nothing. So, and we had the bags that we came with and that was it, you know? Uh, so the fact that, that people, they recognized that we didn't have much and people on multiple times as, you know, in the first couple of years, as we were learning Spanish and getting established in Mexico, people would come over with groceries for us or make meals for oh. us or, you know, invite us to their homes or invite us to stay with them. And like so many people opened their homes, literally like gave us beds in their homes and fed us. And like, I think, I mean, that is a situation that's going to give you a lot of humility. It's like, sometimes you need to just let other people take care of you, you know? Yeah. So that's that's kind of where we were off and on for the first couple of years and it's okay to do that i think a lot of yeah. us have this ego problem where we want to block that and be like no we don't need help or this or that but it, the world in in the big unconditional love network that it is if you can dial into it is very much like that absolutely um, and the I, people and I, oh sorry go ahead yeah i was the the people in mexico are so incredibly generous and gracious and giving and I know like <laughs> it's hard to put that in words like we don't really see that here but you go down there and especially if you are in a position of need it's like they if they see somebody in need they come forward and they will give the shirt off their back you know yeah and it's it's just amazing it's a beautiful place I'm I'm in love with the country I mean obviously yeah. considered taking Sachi down there for an extended stay. Um, I'm a little I worried about the heat. It. I got to figure out the seasoning, <laughs> but like, you know, closer to Mexico city, the weather's a little bit cooler, more Portlandy, mm -hmm. a little bit more rain. Um, but I, how often, I mean, I know that you had these experiences early on with people helping you out 
throughout the whole five-year process, how often do you think the grace of good people um, sort of just being near you or, or coming into your, to the situation and helping out for no reason influenced the outcome of your situation or allowed you to extend it as long as you did? Was it pretty common? Yeah, I mean, I think we went through phases like anybody where, you know, we would have work, we'd be doing okay. And then, like, there was one time where um, my mom my, my mom had some money saved up and then it, it got stolen. And it's like, uh, uh. you know, there's periods of time where, like, we're doing okay and then we're having trouble and we're struggling. Um, and so... I mean, the I would say it happened multiple times, and the, and there are definitely times where I don't know how we could have done it without the help of other people. I mean, there's no way we could have done it on our own. Yeah. Um, but just as you needed. So when you were talking about yeah. doing works, you and your sister were also working. Um. Well, no, my mom was primarily working, but there was a period of time where we kind of had a little family business thing going on. Um, <laughs> We were still learning Spanish, so my mom was struggling. Uh, she's a an RN and um, uh, and a massage therapist. At the time, she was doing massage therapy uh, primarily as a way to support us. But her Spanish was still not good enough to really communicate very well with her patients. So she was struggling with that to bring in enough money for us. So we're you know we had a little family meeting like how can we make some more money and make this work. And Rosie had the idea, my younger sister, she's like, let's sell bread. So, um, <laughs> so we got the ingredients to make like these little, um, empanadas, pasties, mm. pasties, however you, you know, and, uh, we just started making those. Yeah. So we, we, we baked those every afternoon. And then in the evening we would go door to door, literally us white people, family of three mom and her two little girls door to door selling these breads. Um, and it actually made a pretty decent income selling these little breads every evening. And, you know, it allowed us to make enough to eat. So, um, yeah, that's amazing. Well, they love food down there. So we did that for a few months until my mom's Spanish was good enough to, to do the massage. Did she work or do you remember ever kind of exchanging language and sort of helping other people learn English as you were learning Spanish from them? Were there any yeah. like, closer friends that you stuck with a long time to do that with or? Um, not really among friends, actually. I mean, once I learned Spanish, I just played with my friends in Spanish. But yeah. um, but there were a lot of people that were like, hey, teach me English. And so a couple of times I actually uh, started a little ESL class and charged people to come and take lessons from me. And I was teaching these I was like 10 years old teaching English classes to, to people of all ages. But uh, <laughs> yeah, that was kind of fun. That's that that's where cool. I really got my uh, love of teaching, which I still enjoy. Yeah, that that's one of those big things, I guess, that I asked about earlier that has molded how your life is now because you still do yeah. that. Yes, the teaching is it's definitely a, a big thing that came out of Mexico because I had quite a few different opportunities to teach down there even as a kid and one one lady came over when i was i think i was 11 at the time she came over and she said uh, you've been doing these english classes in your house uh, do you want to come and help teach the summer school class at the school so i actually was her assistant 
at the school in town, you know, teaching English classes there for the summer. So it was like a two week summer program. So, yeah. So when you were in Mexico for that extended five year period, were there any attempts by your father to find you still? Did they get close to you at all? Uh, and why did had... you have to go back to the, uh, across the border? Okay. Um, they, the, the FBI had no clue we were in Mexico. And I know this because I've brought their files. Um, they had mm. no clue. They thought we were in Canada because we had lived in Washington. Canada's close to Washington. They assumed we had gone yeah, to Canada. They were actually really working hard with the Canadian authorities looking for us up there and but all over the U.S. Too smart. <laughs> <laughs> they never tried Mexico. They had no inkling. Um, but... Uh, there were people looking for us in Mexico because um, that first town that we were in, Pajacuaran, the the uh, friend of ours who kind of guided us down there and helped us get established, um, his sister-in-law was came down from the U.S. a few weeks later, and she had asked, you know, why he had come down early, and he had told her that he was helping us come down here. So she came down and then started gossiping to all her friends that we were in hiding and that there was probably a reward for us. And so people were passing around pictures and um, somebody came down at some point, um, bounty hunters came down with offering a significant reward for us. Um, and so we had to, uh, we had to move to a different town at that point. That's why we left Bajacuaran so quickly <laughs> because people were. Just think like, about the ridiculousness <laughs> Of the fact that bounty hunters took initiative to go find you in Mexico, living with your mother by choice because you were trying to escape from an abusive father. Like, that is just mind-blowing. Yeah. Well, know? and who knows? I mean, they were probably told, you know, this is a terrible mother who's yeah, that's, that's probably true kidnapped too. her children, and this poor man yeah. is without his children, and, you know, so whatever. But, um, yeah, so we were we were hiding from bounty hunters and on top of everything else. Um, so we left that town and got, got into a different town where, where nobody knew anybody from that first town. Um, and kind of started over at that point. Um, and then why we went back to the U S um, before we, before we get to that, was there anything okay. while you were in Mexico that was extremely frightening or scary that, um, made you guys kind of question if you should stay there or not? Um, or was it pretty safe the whole time? I would say for the most part, it was really safe. There were definitely some scary instances. And my mom, being a single woman in a very macho culture, you know, there were definitely some concerns. She constantly had to, you know, tell the man to go get lost. She wasn't interested, you know. Um, cause people were constantly like, Hey baby, what up? you know? <laughs> so she's like, she constantly had to deal with that. Um, and so there was that, um, but we never, I mean, I, for the most part, we felt perfectly safe. I mean, and we had a lot of really good friends that were watching out for us. I mean, our neighbors watched out for us. Um, so for the most part, we felt totally fine. Um, just as safe there as we would anywhere in the States. Um, there were some scary incidents that happened. Um, 
things that could happen anywhere. Like yeah. uh, one time my mom was out running in the uh, woods and she, you know, she, we used to live in Washington out in the country. She missed being out in nature. So she went out running by herself in the woods and all of our friends were like, don't do that. There's bad people in the woods. It's not safe. And she didn't really listen to them. And one day um, she went into the woods and there was this guy in there that started chasing her. Um, and so that was scary. She managed to get away from them, but that um, could have ended badly, you know? And so there were, there were that a few instances. <laughs> yeah. There were in a few any, instances. Anywhere. Anywhere. I mean, and, and literally that could happen in, in anywhere. Uh, that sort of thing happens, yeah, does. you know, yeah. on the Appalachian trail too. So it doesn't matter where, but yes, there were things like that that happened. Um, you want to hear another dream story? Yeah, for sure. Okay. <laughs> so, um, my mom had this one dream, um, that she was in this museum it's like this place with all these ancient artifacts and um, shields and, um, you know, this very gothic museum type place. And she's walking through and feels kind of creepy. And then a voice in her dream says, when you see this place, get out. So mm. she kind of woke up. She was startled. She's like, whoa, uh, okay. So she thought about it for the next few days, but, you know, Eventually, she kind of forgot about it and went on with life. Several weeks passed. Um, and then one day, one of her clients, <clears throat> she was working by this time in a city called Uruapan, and she worked at a place called Club Olympia, which had a lot of very wealthy, it was a racquetball club. Like, they have a big Olympic swimming pool and tennis courts and racquetball, squash ball, you know, all of this. And a lot of wealthy people would go there and get massages and play tennis and whatnot. And... Um, so a lot of her clients were really pretty ultra-wealthy people. Um, <clears throat> and I forget how who it was connected to, but I, I think it was a friend of one of her clients or something is like, um, or maybe it was just somebody that had heard of her because she by then her name had gotten around. Anyway, somebody showed up at the door and said, um, we have somebody that would like you to come and, and see. He, you know, he's sick. Um so my mom said, okay, sure. And um, my sister and I went with her. We went to, we got in the car and went to this person's place. And it was kind of it's like you almost had to go through a field to get to this place. And then when you walk in, it was like a really elegant house, like, like a mansion. Um, and so my mom went into this guy's area where he was and she could tell that he was really sick. Um, she didn't know what he had, but you know, it was obvious that it was beyond her level of expertise. Yeah. Um, and, but the guy was like, it was kind of obvious that he was a really powerful person, but she didn't know who he was. Um, but when she walked in, she looked up and it was the same place that was in her dream. Like this the place was oh. decorated like a museum. <laughs> And she's like, I need to get out of here, you know? Whoa. Uh, and so anyway, <clears throat> she's like, I'm sorry. I can't help you. Um, this is beyond my level. And 
She's like, I'm really sorry. <laughs> and he says, he waited and looked at her for a long time. And he's like, yeah, I'm sorry too. Whoa. And, uh, well, that's creepy. After a little bit, they're like, okay, you can go now. So they actually let her leave and we, they took us out and drove us home. And my mom was like, you know, I don't know what that was, but, uh, but a while later she was telling somebody about it. She's like, you know, we were the, this guy's place, like, and somebody's like, what? You know, the, this person she was talking to was one of her wealthy clients. And they're like, don't ever tell any, anybody about that. And she's like, well, who was he? And she's like, just don't mention it to anybody. Never talk about wow. it. So we never know what that was, but yeah, that was another oh. <laughs> crazy. Yeah. Cool. So that's, that's another story that my mom wrote for the book. Wow, um, you get these, these taps, you know, pay attention to them for yeah. sure. The hard part yeah. is kind of trying to decipher if these messages are, are, you know, the, the intuitive guide or are they your resistance trying to keep you from becoming one? Yeah. And sometimes it's confusing. That's, it's with such both a hard thing like, to, to figure <laughs> out. Like, is this, does this mean something or is this just me being afraid? Yeah. It, it, that, and I think that's kind of the, that's how life, that's, that's the biggest challenge in life is, and I don't know, you can go back to this kind of feeling of unconditional love and inside internally, I do believe that if we really get silent and quiet the chatter, we can feel, really feel which one, um, is right, you know, and then it's usually the one that feels the hardest. <laughs> Yeah. Or the most scary, you know, it is usually the scariest one that you have to follow, but I, I definitely pay attention. And the more I pay attention to those signs, the more I progress into my higher self, which is a, a phenomenal thing. So I'm happy that she left that place that. <laughs> yeah. That Glad he decided to let us go. Cause I mean, who knows if he was like some big evil guy, he could have just said, they've seen my face. I'm not going to let them live. And yeah like disappeared at that point. <laughs> who knows? I don't know. I, I have no idea who that guy was. Maybe he was fine. But judging by the reaction of the other person who's like, don't ever mention it. It makes me think maybe he wasn't so good. I don't know. Uh, so you, when your mother was working in cities, were, were you and your sister kind of like free roaming around the cities um, on your own? Did you just kind of always felt protected by the communities around you? Well, you know, we had explicit instructions from our mom when if she was if she was out. I mean, at the club, we actually went with her. I mean, Rosie and I were out swimming in the Olympic pool and having a blast. Oh, nice. um, and we took our school books with us. And so we'd like sit at the picnic tables and do our schoolwork. And then when we were done with that, we would go swim or play tennis or whatever we felt like doing. And, and all the people at, at the grounds loved us and like would bring us potato chips and juice and treats. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so. <laughs> All so the we good were stuff. friends with the employees at the at the club. But anyway, um, so, yeah, when she worked at the club, I mean, initially she had a lady come and take care of us um, while she was working. But once she'd been going to the club, she basically uh, deemed it was a safe place for us to be and everybody was OK with her bringing us. And so she just let us come with her to to work and we, we would play outside while she gave massages and she could see us from the window where she gave from just look out the window and see us out there playing. So, so we were we were basically with her, um, and then a lot of times she she gave treatments either in our house or in 
you know, her client's house and we would just go with her. So a lot of times we were with her. Um, and after we moved to Batsquaro, she kept working in Uruapan for a while. And um, it was about an hour by bus to get there. And um, so our instructions were, don't leave the house, you know, until I get back. So, you know, by then we were, you know, old enough to be at home by ourselves, but uh, we didn't go out and wander in the streets until she got home. <laughs> yeah. So, um, but I mean, the neighborhood was very safe. And when she was around, we, you know, were totally fine, like going to the store by ourselves or whatever. It was just a few blocks away. And I mean, just like all the other kids in, in the neighborhood, we'd go out and play with them and wander around and it was totally safe. Cool. It's a beautiful thing. So you yeah. started heading back to the States. Um, what were you going to start talking about at that point when I changed the subject on you? <laughs> okay. Well, um, yes, we started. So what happened at that point, um, and this is kind of a, the roughest part for me was leaving Mexico because by the time we'd been there for a few years and been in Pascuaro and made those close friends, um, that was home. I didn't want to leave. Yeah. But my mom was starting to feel isolated. She felt like um, she would never fit in, you know, and she, she was lonely. And uh, even though we had good friends, she just, you know, there were multiple things. And then also one of our friends down there was a lawyer, still a good friend of ours, actually. I just, I still talk with him all the time. Um, and he basically said, you know, if you, if you get caught in Mexico, it could be bad, you know, because we'd confided in him that we were on the run and told him what, what was going on. And he's like, you know, if, if the Mexican authorities catch you, who knows what could happen? You know, it could be bad. <laughs> um, <laughs> so there was that in her mind. And like, at that point, we'd had... We'd been in Mexico for a long time and our paperwork, our visas had run out. We basically were overstaying our visas and we were in Mexico illegally at that point. We, six months after we got there, we became illegals basically. Um, and so um, there was that. And there also, you know, I was getting older, starting to get interested in boys and my mom was like worried about that. And, um, and she was, she wanted us to go to college in the States and have more opportunities. So she's like, it'd be good if we could get back into the States and become reacquainted with your own culture so you can fit in at college and all of that kind of stuff, you know, and computers were starting to become more of a thing. And she's like, you know, what if they can track us more easily? And if they track us down here, you know, just back to the getting caught down here. So anyway, there's multiple factors that went into it. And she basically made the unilateral decision that we would move back to the States. Rosie and I didn't want to, but <laughs> this was, and usually we made decisions together, but this is one where she's like, nope, we're going to move back. So, um, so we did, we moved back to the States and um, she, at first we thought we'll move to El Paso because it's on the border. You kind of get both cultures. It'd be a nice transition where, you know, you have Mexico right there and lots of Mexicans in the area and, you know, it'd be a good thing. Home on both sides. <laughs> yeah. Um, and we got, and it was a good idea in theory, but El Paso see, is like any border area. It's like 
there's a lot of crime, like a lot of riffraff from both sides trying to cross from one area to the, to the other. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a Dangerous lot of crime. Area. Yeah. A lot of gangs. And, you know, obviously we didn't have much money. We couldn't afford the better parts of town, you know? So it's like, um, not the best. We need to leave El Paso because this is not a safe place for us to be. So, um, we ended up pulling out a map, like, where should we go? <laughs> and, uh, we looked like what's reasonably close and we're like, Oh, here's a place with a funky looking name, Albuquerque. Let's go to Albuquerque. <laughs> so we got into a bus and went to Albuquerque just on a whim. Um, and so I like that, Albuquerque yeah. for what it is. <laughs> I like Albuquerque. Albuquerque is a good place. I like the mountain that kind of just sits behind it and it's yeah. a cool, cool little vibe. Sandia mountains. Love those mountains. I've hiked all over in them. Yeah. Um, so, so how long were you there? We were in uh, Albuquerque for close, uh, about a year. Well, yeah, a little over a year and a half. And then, dun, dun, dun. And... How did this come to a, a resolve with when you got back into the United States? Did you find it becoming harder to conceal yourself again? Um, or was it more yes. of your mother kind of understanding that eventually you'd have to come out of a hiding for the sake of you all, or maybe a combination. Yeah. I mean, we knew we were tired of running and it was definitely much, much harder in the States and, than in Mexico. Cause in Mexico, you know, my mom could just work and, you know, go to the club and whatever. And they'd never, they didn't care about paperwork or anything like that. Yeah. Here it's like, where's your social security number? You know, you can't get a legit job. Um, with a, you know, we, we didn't have a bank account. We didn't yeah. use ID. So everything had to be, you know, work for cash, which is really hard to do. And um, technologies was rapidly changing in the early nineties. Yeah. There. Technology was yeah. ramping up and it was, uh, it was getting to be really, really challenging to be on the run. So we were getting stressed out for sure. And really tired of hiding. Um, and we decided at one point, let's try to get this resolved so that we can come out of hiding. By then, my sister and I were older. You know, it's like we can kind of look after ourselves a little better. So maybe we can make this work somehow. Um, and we found a, a way to do mediation calls that couldn't be traced um, and so tried to work something out <laughs> uh, with my biological dad and um, did not really get anywhere. Um, the, the demands he was making just weren't acceptable to us. So uh, we decided, all right, we're going to keep hiding. Um, what were his demands? Just basically like that full custody. And I um, mean, he would say things like he, you understand this, this uh, sociopath who plays games with your mind. So he yeah. would like one call, he'd be really nice. He's like, you know, I, I realized that maybe the best thing would be for the girls to be with you. So, you know, let's let them come back and just have a trial period with me. And if they're not happy and they want to go back with you, we'll just let them go back with you. Yeah. Like, okay, cool. Great. Awesome. Let's, we're getting somewhere. Let's, let's keep talking. <laughs> so next call we get on and he'd be like, well, you know, after the six month trial period, if I decide that it's okay for them to go back with you, then, you know, but if not, then they have to stay with me. Um, it's like, uh, oh. 
no, I think <laughs> we want some say in this, you know? So it's like stuff like that was going on. Um, and yeah, so that didn't work out. We kept hiding. At one point, the cops showed up. Um, they had gotten some kind of an anonymous call from somebody, we don't know who, but they were asking for my mom by her pseudonym, not by her birth name. So apparently they didn't have a full story and I don't know what, but they're like, we understand that you're, uh, you've taken the kids from their father and that you're, you know, on the run. And <laughs> so um, that's, that's a whole, uh, that's a whole other story of yeah us escaping from them <laughs> can you put it in a nutshell of a couple you know minute yeah. or so of how that happens yeah so nutshell is they show up at the door i i answered the door and it's this guy's like you know can i speak with road a friend big cop <laughs> and i was of course extremely scared my heart was just pounding i'm like uh Pretending to play it all cool. Oh yeah, just a minute. No, so I go into the other room and I'm like, you know, uh, <laughs> I was just forced. I could barely get the word out, you know, police at the door. And my mom kind of gestured toward the back door, and Rosie and I took off running. We went yeah. out the back door, jumped over the back fence, ran through the neighbor's yard, and then went up the up the street uh, on the other block. And we're running, uh, trying to get away from these cops. And my mom goes to the front door and she's trying to stall them, you know, just keep them talking yeah. as long as possible. And um, we hadn't really made a plan, like if the cops show up, where we would go. So Rosie and I went to the place that we knew best, which was, you know, we always, you know, we loved hiking. So we were always up in the trails in the, in the mountains. So we we're like, okay, let's go up to the mountains and up a trail. <laughs> so, um, so we're running up there and, um, and basically, um, a lot of a lot of time went by with them trying to investigate or interrogate my mom. She wasn't giving them anything. Then they realized Rosie and I were gone, and they sent like a dozen or more cop cars out to look for us. I think my mom said she counted thirteen. Oh um, they handcuffed her and threw her in the back of a police car, and um, didn't read her her rights or anything. So she's like, this isn't quite right. And um, so they couldn't find us and they were starting to get really violent with her. Um, at, at one point, she, while they were out looking for us, they left her alone in the car. She was able, to, she's got really small hands. She slipped out of the handcuff. Wow. And... <laughs> opened the car door and got out and ran into the neighbor's house. She asked the neighbor, can I use your phone? And the neighbor let her use the phone. Um, and she called some friends of ours who knew our situation and briefly told them what was going on. And then the cops came stumping in and they're really mad because she'd escaped and everything. And they're <laughs> really mad at her. Um, so they triple handcuffed her and they were like starting to get violent with her, throwing her around. And, um, Rosie and I, meanwhile, are like up in the mountains going, what do we do? We can't like sit up here after dark. It's not safe. Um, and eventually we decided, okay, let's 
go down and we'll call our friends um, and see if they can come get us. We'll see. I mean, we didn't have any money or anything. It was just like, we'll knock on somebody's door and see if they let us use their phone. So, um, so that was the plan. And as we were going downhill, we saw some people coming up toward us. And my first thought was like, maybe I should hide because I mean, it could be the cops or something. But then I'm looking and I'm like, that's our friends, you know, it was the friends my mom had called and they knew us really well. And they guessed that we'd been on, that we'd gone up to that trail. And so that's where they, the first place they went to look for us. Um, so they picked us up. And um, meanwhile, wow. my mom is like being rough handled by the cops. And eventually she's like, I want to talk to my attorney. And um, they're like, well, you haven't even been arrested. So, and she's like, not arrested. I have three sets of handcuffs on. You're pushing me all over the place. If I'm not arrested, what am I? You know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and like, so eventually they're like, well, who's your attorney? And she said, Leon Taylor. And everybody just like stopped. They're like, Leon Taylor? And they took the handcuffs off and they're like, ma'am, you have a really nice day. If there's anything we can do to help you, you just call us, you know, and they just oh, get in their wow. cards and drive away. My mom's Was that like, actually her attorney? Happened? <laughs> okay. So Leon Taylor is somebody that we went to just a few weeks earlier. Like when we'd been doing the the mediation calls, yeah. my mom had decided that it would be a good idea to get some legal advice. So we just went to an attorney's office for their free consultation and it was Leon Taylor's office, but she didn't know anything about this attorney. She just had looked him up in the phone book <laughs> and it was like near where we were living. So we went to his place and it turns out he's like, I mean, you can Google him, Leon Taylor, Albuquerque lawyer. He's like a famous lawyer and the cops are scared of him because wow. I mean, he's retired now, but the cops were scared of him because like, I guess one of the things he would do in court is look through the things that they had done done wrong and then get the cases thrown out. So obviously they'd been doing a whole bunch of things wrong with my mom. So yeah, it sounds like it. <laughs> so they were scared. So, <laughs> so that's how we got away from them. But, if, but then we're like, okay, now the cops know where we live. So if they get more information, they could really come after us. So uh, we have to hide again. So we basically, we change our names again and moved again, basically broke contact with everybody we knew and started all over again. So um, that was the hardest time that last year. Um, wow. And it ended with us making another attempt at mediation. And that time the FBI managed to trace the call and locate us. So the FBI found us. And that was in 1992, or sorry, 1994. Yeah. 92 was the year we got back from Mexico. So 1994, um, they showed up the Friday before Mother's Day. Wow. Yeah. It's incredible. So when they finally captured you, what happened to your mother and where, where did you end up going? Um, the FBI took her to, uh, a federal detention center and they took, um, so they, yeah, basically she, w she went to jail and, um, Rosie and I went to, um, a receiving home 
for basically for kids whose parents are in jail or otherwise yeah. not around. So, um, and, um, she was, she was in jail over the weekend. And then, um, Paul, my stepdad now <laughs> bailed her out. Um, and then she had to show up for a uh, sentencing in Washington, uh, a few weeks after that. And then she was sentenced to a year in prison um, wow. after after all that. So, and of course, Rosie and I were thrown back in with our abusive father, which was a horrible, horrible year, but we uh, survived. <laughs> How did you finally break away from him again? Um. My mom was sentenced to a year, but she only had to serve about five months um, because of good time. And, you know, then she submitted an appeal and they let her out early. Um, and after she got out, Rosie and I really started doubling down our efforts to get back with her because and the situation was at home was not good. He was physically abusing Rosie, uh, our stepmom. Uh, our stepbrothers. <laughs> he did not physically abuse me. It was mental, emotional abuse, but not physical abuse to me, but it was always to my sister. Uh, and that's the way it had been before, too. Like, he, he abused her, but not me. Um, physically. Um, but anyway, um, so, yeah, uh, I decided uh, nobody was listening listening to us like when things would happen like he would hit her i called the police the police would come and they would side with him you know these kinds of things were happening and everybody's like well you've been brainwashed your evil mother broke the law and kidnapped you from your poor father and you know um i'm like no i was not brainwashed he's still doing this crap now like <laughs> it's yeah. like this is how, i'm talking how much about does right it take? Now. yeah um so anyway after months of getting nowhere, um, I was talking to Rosie and we decided to get our own attorney. We're like, the court appointed guardian ad litem is not doing anything for us. So let's, let's find somebody who will speak for us. And um, we had, it, during that last um, mediation attempt, right before we got caught, we had been in touch with an attorney in Washington um, and so we decided he knows what's he knows our case. He kind of is familiar with us. Let's see if we can find him and see if he'll help us. So after school one day, we just went to his office and said, hey, we're the kids that, you know, <laughs> I told him, he, like, he remembered the situation and um, and basically found us a free attorney um, to help us. And after that, we had a voice. And there was a settlement conference some months later. And at the settle con settlement conference, it was decided that we would transition back to living with our mom. So we amazing. won in the end. Victory. Victory. It's, it's kind of amazing that you had to go through all of that just to get to that point. But in a way, it shaped your entire life for in many beautiful ways. Um, Absolutely. It's the best thing that ever happened to me. I know you say that and look, <laughs> if anyone wants to hear this full story and in detail that you have, 
you've put together a book with your mother. It's called Seven Years Running, unless you yes. change the title. And... <laughs> yeah, unless I, unless I, <laughs> uh, if we get a publisher who says that's a terrible title, here's a better one. Uh, it'll be Seven Years Running, um, and it's what's, not out yet. Yeah, but... what's the? Do you have an update on the timeline of when this will come out? Um, well, it kind of depends on whether we get a traditional publisher or self-publish. Traditional publishers take a long time. So if it, if we decide to go with a traditional publisher, it could be a while. Um, if we self-publish, I'm hoping by the end of this year, we'll have something that's publishable and we can either put it out ourselves or give it to a publisher to put out. Um, yeah. so uh, yeah, ideally by June of this year, um, by the end of June, but um, I don't, birthday month. You know, that was my original, that was my original goal, but I, you know, with it being mid May now, honestly, uh, <laughs> it's probably not going to happen, but I, uh, we are working with an editor. Um, and he gave us some, he went through the entire manuscript, gave us some suggestions. We're working through the book right now, implementing what he said. And then we're, what I'd like to do, and my mom is on board with this too, is we're going to hire him to, help us go through it one last time and really give it a good polish. And then it should be ready for a publisher. So. Amazing. And I'm excited. And if anybody wants uh, to hear more information with you right now, I know that you have been on some other shows. You've talked about this story in different ways. There's been different mm -hmm. stories that have come out of it. Um, I'm sure that by Googling seven years running in your name, they could probably come across some of these podcasts. Uh, maybe even, I think I've listened to one on YouTube before that somebody put up. Um, you did one maybe two years ago that was really in detailed and great that I suggest to yeah. people when you were first getting there's started. One, there's one um, on the Laps uh, Storytelling Podcast by Kyle Yest, and he that's, edited yeah, it, it, so it's kind of like drama. Uh, NPR-y. <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, so a good do you one. know where they could find that if they, they look for it? Um, yeah, it's just called... Um, the lapse and I think it's episode 40 something in the lapse and it's um, taken I think is the and, title of it I think it's called taken I'll find it and put oh. it in in the show notes which you guys can get at heatharmstrong.com forward slash podcast awesome <laughs> Lily as you've grown out of um, that situation and, and really become this amazing creative figure and nomadic in every single way. And your husband, Keith, who's phenomenal. And he, he kind of contracts jobs all over the place and you guys get to move around and, and, and experience and continue to experience. How do you, what, what do you think the things that you learned when you were a child, how do you think that's helped you now as far as like a bird's eye view of things in maybe efficient living, simple living, uh, removing distractions or things that aren't really necessary? How does that, how does that keep your head clear? Oh man. I, I think so many things from my childhood. I mean, obviously growing up on the run, we had to be able to move very quickly. If we found out somebody was after us. So we never had a lot of stuff. Um, and so practicing minimalism and, um, just being able to get up and, and go with very little is something that I learned way back and continue to practice in my current nomadic life. Um, it, the, obviously, 
cultures and languages as we travel around to different countries and get to know more people. It's like, I might not speak the language of every country I go to, but I know the process of learning a language. I know the process of getting to know a culture. And so I feel, I feel like I'm able to adapt very quickly when I go to different places um, yeah. and connect with locals in, in ways that maybe some people uh, don't or can't. So, Yeah, there is a whole other language uh, there that has nothing to do with vocals when you're interacting around countries. Yeah. What's what's the favorite what's your favorite place you've ever been? Oh man. I kind of hate this question because <laughs> different pla <laughs> different places um yeah, are special in different tough. ways. But I mean, if I had to pick one place, that if you were going to say you have to go to this one place and you can't go anywhere else and you have to stay there for the rest of your life, Pátzcuaro, Mexico, the town where I lived as a kid, that's home. Um and that's always going to have a very very special place in my heart. Um, there are a lot of other places I love that I could live, but if I just had to pick one, that would be it. Yeah. Do you have any, are there any resources off the top of your head for people living in RVs or, um, vans? Maybe how, how do you find the next spot that you're going to post up in camp? Is there, is there like an index somewhere online, um, oh, to save you money? <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I don't know of a single resource that, you know, maybe I should create one because that would be awesome, but a single <laughs> resource that like has all of the possible places you could stay in your RV, especially, you know, long-term because there's, there's plenty of RV parks, but a lot of them are, you know, max two weeks. And if my work, my husband is working on a job that's two months, that's obviously not going to work for us. Um, so but Google is awesome. Um, Google Maps is great. And I find uh, one little tip for RVers, especially if you're going to do long-term stuff, is um, look past the RV parks. I, fi I find that there are some pretty decent mobile home parks that have the setup to accommodate an RV. Um, and they're a lot cheaper. You know, the monthly rate is a lot cheaper to get an RV lot in a in a mobile home park rather than an RV park. So that's one little thing that we do. Interesting. Um, hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's one little thing we do when we're going to different places and we're going to be there for a while. Is uh, look look at the mobile home parks. Yeah. Um, they don't have all the amenities of an RV park, but uh, it saves a lot of money. And if you're in the area for a while, it's definitely worth looking into. So where's your RV currently right now? <laughs> my husband just drove it to Iowa yesterday. So oh, is he working yeah. on a project out there? <laughs> yeah, he's he's actually uh, in charge of a project out there for the next few months. So nice. That's where we will be, northeastern Iowa. Yeah, he's a great dude. Yeah, he it's, is. It's a, it's a cool a story keeper. how you guys met, and yeah, it's it's just very, you know, there's a lot of divine synchronicity with you and your life and everything that's happened. I. I'm pumped that I got to see your mother on the camera there for the first time. I would love to talk to her. Yeah, have her on the show things. someday. She can tell you more stories. Yeah. She can tell you this dream story better than I did, too. The <laughs> warning dream where, you know, the museum. Yeah. Yeah. Um, my last question is specifically for me. How are you able to get the internet that you need when you need it on the road? Are you 
going to a lot of McDonald's parking lots, do you have a hotspot in the RV that you use um, that works efficiently or is it just a shit show? <laughs> oh gosh, it can be, it can be a challenge. That is one of my ever present challenges is finding good internet. Vital, yeah, as you know, if you're, if you have an online, online. business, um, and a lot of RV parks, and especially mobile home parks, which is another reason I like mobile home parks, you can actually call the local internet company out, and they will d directly hook you up. So I sometimes I will have time, the local yeah. internet company out there hooking me up, and then I I use that for a few months and then cancel when we pull out. Um, uh, so that's one option. And then some um, RV parks have Wi-Fi. It's usually pretty bad. Um, there was one RV park last year that actually had pretty decent Wi-Fi. Um, so you never know. Um, and then, yeah, a lot of coffee shops, <laughs> a lot of coffee shops <laughs> and libraries. Uh, so libraries, yeah. Yeah, libraries are a big one for me because I don't have to buy something to use the Internet. So Yeah, I'm contemplating, you know, it's it's if you have an RV and you're setting up for an extended period of time, it seems like there's a solution usually for how you can figure that out. But if you're moving a mm -hmm. lot more in a – smaller vehicle like I'm going to be doing, I'm thinking getting hotspot could work. But then again, a lot of campsites and things like that are not anywhere near service areas. And I have Sprint. In mm -hmm. Sprint, I can't get service in Portland. Yeah, so there's going to be a lot of blank spots with Sprint. And and a lot of hots. I mean, we've done hotspots from a couple of different companies. They can be okay, but there's a data limit usually. Um, yeah. And Which, you blow through that when you work online all day, you know, especially when you're doing video transfers, like we're exactly. Doing. Yeah. yeah. So, well, cool. I could talk to you forever. Lily, have fun at your conference that you're going to. Um, I think you, what, what are, where are, where is the conference? Is it Colorado? It's in Denver and it's, okay. uh, it's a conference put on by Pete Vargas from advance your reach, reach live. It's all about, it's a, it's another public speaking conference. I still, I still have moments where I'm like, like my confidence boost is so much heavier when I speak because of the heroic one that you guested me to. That was so not so graciously. Awesome. It really was the most effective thing I've ever been to. I think as far as tools to overcome resistance and, and, and to do public speaking. I mean, it, it Michael and Amy Porter are phenomenal. Yeah. That's all I have yeah, to say. Yeah. They're awesome. Yeah. I love those guys. And I think things are slowly starting to change for me to be able to step more into that, that role. And, um, yeah, I'm just so happy awesome. to have caught up with well, you. Well, I can't wait to see you on some stages cause you are going to be awesome. <laughs> yeah. I'm actually working on some stuff with my sister right now. She's, I found out that it's not necessarily the speaking as much as it is for me trying to connect the dots to make that work. And with my older sister, who's really stepping into her light right now. She's so good at that. And she has a whole nother level of, of understanding of certain types of um, energetic play and development of the self. While I have a more lo logical approach with habits, affirmations and things like that. And so we're looking at combining the two and starting to actually take that into companies that have teams and then helping them develop internally how to make it a better workplace. And it's not scary to me at all for some reason uh, with her being kind of in charge of the logistics of all of it and me kind of just stepping in with the knowledge that I have um, from learning from amazing people, you know, such as yourself for the last five years. So it's, 
it doesn't ever exactly unfold how you think when you, you know, you think when you have these visions and you, you can kind of see where you're going, but the steps in between, we can't ever really see. It's a little bit foggy, but it does, it does unfold in, in the way that you intend eventually, if you keep your, your mindset focused in the right place. So you've been a big help for that. So thank you seriously from, from my heart, my mind and my gut. I I appreciate it. Well, that makes me happy. Makes me very (laughs) happy. Yeah. And I got to start sending you some poems to get some editing. I have, (laughs) this is kind of a passion project, Lily, but I can't stop writing poetry. And I know that it's not a high demand thing out there, but I really want to just put this poem book out. And um, so I'm going to stop bombarding you because I, I have no ability to correct that stuff myself, but I think you might (laughs) enjoy reading some of it. So we'll be in touch. I know I will. I love reading your stuff. (laughs) Yeah. Cool. And uh, Lily and I are members of a group called Location Indie Online, and we met originally at World Domination Summit um, briefly after join. I joined it. I, I think you might have been. I was one of the first to join the actual online community when they launched it. You were too. Mm-hmm. You may have yeah. been dialed into a Jason Moore and Travis um, Sherry before that, but it, it's been almost five years, four, five years now, four years and mm-hmm. it feels like my entire life. It does. Just every <laughs> single moment of the past four years has been so impactful. People say that time flies when you're having fun. And I really, I really think the opposite. When I look back the years before that, it feels like it went by in a snap because I was doing nothing that was intentional or of importance. And, and the last four years have been so intentional and important that I remember all of the moments and it feels like a long time. And I'm, I'm I'm very grateful to move through the rest of life like that as well. And yeah, I'm just, that's my positive rant for the end of the podcast. <laughs> Where can uh, awesome. people get a hold of you if they want Lily? My website, which I have not touched because I've been trying to get the book finished, but my website is lilianfouts.com. Okay. And anybody wanting a free excerpt of the book, uh, there's a little free sample on there. And there's also some stories that I put on the blog. So if you want more stories, um, you can find them on the website there. And I'll be adding more, especially once I finish the book. I'm going to be putting a lot on the website um, to start really promoting it. So Amazing. Well, I'll see you in, in uh, the interwebs. And I hope to yeah. see you in person soon. Maybe I'll come down to Potsquato when you, yes, when you get back absolutely. down there. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Definitely going to be nomad. So, you know, I can just do whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Come see us in Iowa. (laughs) I do have to drive back to Tennessee for about a month. So there's there's that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's very possible that I could dip up there. It's not the most exciting state, but you know, I could make it. No, it's not. But (laughs) Hey, there's exciting people there. Yeah, there is for (laughs) sure. You'll probably be somewhere else by the time that happens though. Yeah. Who knows? Give your mom a hug for me and, and tell her thank you for successfully getting you to where you're at because, you know, in reality, had she not done what she did then, you would not be where you are now. Which that is absolutely have, true. I would have I would never a had totally different you know, person. the correct editor for the, the journal or the influence <laughs> to put that out in the beginning, which changed everything. And, um, yeah, 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 it was just – it's remarkable how things happen. So there's a reason for all of it. And thank you for sharing all of that so intimately too. Well, thank you for having me. Okay. Sweet, Lily. That was awesome. 
I'm pumped. I know that went really long. I hope this you didn't helps. have to be somewhere. <laughs> no, my, my, uh, my morning is clear. I told my yeah. mom it might go for a while. <laughs> yeah. My podcast just, I feel like it's like an hour and a half, but it's yeah, just your podcast so is awesome. And so interesting. Like I've, I've been listening to your episodes and a lot of the like spirituality stuff that you get into. Yeah. I think you and my mom would jive really well. Like she's like on that same page and I could tell I think, just from like the three minutes she was standing there. I was kind of sad yeah. she walked away so quick. <laughs> um, yeah. There's been a lot of really interesting things that have happened. You know, ever since I did ayahuasca, I've had multiple people, just random strangers around me come up to me and be like, have you done ayahuasca? Because like, if they have done it, they can pick up the essence from other people that have done it. It's really weird. And I'm like, yeah, what's up? Who are you? <laughs> like, and then we become really good friends, and it's it's so huh. strange. It's like an integrative thing that continues to work on you in so many different ways, and my mindset and everything has been so much better the last hmm. six months. So and, interesting. It's leading me yeah. to this this experience lifestyle, and and I'm I just feel like I'm the as as little fear as I ever had in my life right now, even though it's the dark really the most confusing thing I have no idea for the first time in my life. I have no idea where I'm going, but mm -hmm. I do in a way, you know, and it's just kind of like a trust factor. So I feel very non-stressed about the whole thing and Bitcoin's cool. doing well. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, Bitcoin. There's a place called space and it's got the magic There's a place called space and it's got the balls There's a place called space and it's got the passion There's a place called space where we can smash the walls There's a place called space where we'll face fuck conformity And the chatter of incompetence is slaughtered at birth In this place called space we'll build a factory of smells That will assemble with our minds and sell to earth Motherfuckers. Mm. Oh. Mm. I'm getting all sorts of energies moving through my body just thinking about how sexy you are. We're very happy that you joined the show today. Obviously, I'm making these noises for a reason. My nipples are hard, and that might not be the only thing. And I'm just extremely grateful for your presence. I'd like to encourage you to go out into the world and experience things. Grab some milk and pour it all over your head and see if you can help locate that kid that's on the back of it. You just might find out that later in life, they're going to play an important role in influencing you to have better experiences as well. All the show notes, heatharmstrong.com forward slash podcast. To enter this week's giveaway, go to heatharmstrong.com forward slash giveaway. 
And that's it. You know, that's all I got today. Um, I'm going to get back to my salt bath. Maybe play a little bit with my rubber duckies. You know, there's lots of cool things you can do with rubber duckies in the bathtub that you may not have even thought of before. I'll let you leave that to your imagination. Until next time, folks. Ta-ta! Ta-ta!